Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is C.B. Harquale, a change agent, author, consultant, and retired management professor who works at the intersection of organizational change, feminist praxis, leadership, and digital technology. We will be talking with C.B. about her recent book, Feminism, a Key Idea for Business and Society, the first to combine feminism and business. We explore how the ideas in the book craft a vision of work where businesses are profitable, products and work are meaningful, financial returns are consistent and fair, and individuals, communities, and the planet all flourish. CV offers practical tools, useful frameworks, and novel resources for initiating and sustaining real change. Welcome, CV. Hi, Terry. Thank you for having me um, to talk with you and your community today. Well, the pleasure and honor is all mine because I cannot thank you enough for writing this book. I hope that doesn't sound cliche, but when I was reading this book in preparation for our conversation, there were so many aha moments that mm-hmm. I felt like I was going through this sort of awakening when domestic violence survivors begin to realize the experiences they've had and there are actually words to name them. So I felt like, wow, okay, these are ideas that I've thought about and I felt and experienced and For you to be able to name them really put everything into perspective, and I'm really happy to be able to share this with my audience. Oh, that, Terry, that's so wonderful, because one of the things that I was hoping was that readers would come to the book and go, yeah, I knew that, but I didn't have words to explain it simply, or I didn't know how to name it, or I didn't know how to hook it to that other idea. I was really hoping that that a lot of readers would go, yeah, this makes sense to me. And it's helping me lift up understandings that I've had before or insights that I've had before, and then put them together in a package that makes them all the more powerful for you. On your website, you have a quote, feminism hasn't failed. It's just never been tried by Hillary Mantel. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a great summary of how you began your book. Um, which is why businesses don't seem interested in feminism. Can you talk about that? Sure. I think to to kind of use the words of Hillary Clinton, um, there is a vast right-wing status quo conspiracy keeping people from understanding what feminism is, what feminism has to offer us, what feminism has done for us. And so I started at the very beginning trying to think about what's the simplest reason to explain why business hasn't taken up feminism. And the simplest reason is that businesses and business people and economists just don't know what feminism is. Now, there are a lot of reasons why they might not know, but the fundamental piece is they don't know. So let's give them an introduction that kind of explains it in a nutshell and focuses on the parts of feminism that are really relevant or most relevant to the challenges of working together to make things that people need and to earn a livelihood for all of us. I'd like to structure our conversation so that we go through 
the key highlights mm-hmm. of your book, which is divided into three parts. But in no way, for listeners, do I want you to think that this should be a substitute for you reading the book. So the, th- the three chapters that you have are a primer for feminism for business, mm-hmm. obstacles and approaches to gender equality in business, and then feminist interventions and business concepts. So yes. let's, let's start with the first chapter. In the book, you begin with Bell Hooks' definition of feminism and expand upon it. So could mm-hmm. you share what your definition of feminism is? Sure. So I will tell you that that action of expanding upon Bell Hooks' definition of feminism was, in my view, one of the most um, transgressive acts that I could take uh, in writing this book, partly because Bell Hooks is the person to whom I look and so many other people look for the basic understanding of what feminism is. And I feel like everyone should read her book, Feminism is for Everybody. And in Feminism is for Everybody and all of Bell Hooks' other work, she starts with the um, definition of feminism, that it's a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and in that way, all oppressions. And that's pretty much where she stops. And that is correct, but I don't think it's enough to really capture what feminism is now and what feminism means to business people. And so I added two things. One is that feminism is a movement to establish political, social, and economic equality. So it's one thing to end sexism, but it's another thing to establish all forms of equality And then the third thing that I added was the feminist future or the vision, which is to create a world where all people flourish. So again, it's one thing to end sexism, and it's another thing to establish equality. But we don't want to all be equal in a system that's dying. We don't want to be equal in a system that's hurting us. We want to use our collective agency and our democratic interaction to envision and then move towards a world where everyone flourishes. We need to do something with that equality. We need to do something once we've thrown off the chains of oppression, if you will. And that, to me, is the piece of feminism. There are actually two pieces of feminism that I think people don't get. And this idea that feminism is constructive and has a vision for the future that's based on a set of feminist values I think that's one of those things that people are like, what? They haven't heard that before. Yet if you read feminist writers and work with feminist groups, they're always thinking about a different world and a better world. And I think that needs to be captured explicitly in our definition of feminism. When you use the words equality and equity, um, some people use it interchangeably. And I love the Mm -hmm. fact that in your book, you actually define the differences between parity, equality, and equity. What, yes. are, what are those differences? Okay, so we, the reason that I define them is not only because, you know, obviously I want people to know how I'm using the words, but I also want people to know how our understandings of these concepts have been diminished and have been constrained and in some cases contorted so that they keep us from actually pushing for these ideas. So for example, the the biggest distortion, if you will, is in the conventional understanding of equality. And most people in the US think that equality now means having the same treatment. Um, If we're equal, I'm treated the same way as you. And that tends to be a really, not only a very legalistic sort of understanding, 
but it does nothing to address the fact that we are all different and have different needs and different positions in society. And so I ask people to return to a a moral understanding of equality, which is this idea that we are all equally human. We are all equally valuable. No one person is better than another person. And so if we are all equal as human beings, we all equally deserve access to resources. We deserve support. We deserve community. We deserve flourishing. Everybody does. And so that's a, that's a really different way of thinking about equality than just making sure everybody gets the same treatment. And when we have that understanding of equality, of us all being equally valuable as human beings, then we can understand and work with equity. And equity is basically this idea that we need to give people what they need to support them in contributing to the world and living a good life. And people will have different needs. So for me, um, when I was, I had just given birth to my first daughter and I was kind of ill, I needed support and some extra time off from work so that I could come back fully ready to take up my job again. And I needed something very different from my colleague who'd adopted a baby. And she needed something very different from another colleague who didn't have children at all. But we all had different needs. We're all equally human and valuable. And so therefore, we need different kinds of support to get us, um, to enable us to flourish. And then parity is one of these ideas that we use a lot in the business world. And basically, it's kind of a sameness, but understanding that, you know, it's kind of a proportionalism. So if we've got five male executive vice presidents, uh, and men are 50% of the company, we should have five female executive vice presidents because they're 50% of the company too. So parity is a, is a kind of um, very specific numerical goal that kind of gets us started, gives us a little bit of traction as we're moving forward to try to push for equality and equity. I love the example in your book, where you use the shoe to illustrate these concepts of equality of value and treatment. What was that example? Can you <laughs> reference it again for us? <laughs> yeah, so, so I've heard this in a bunch of, um, like in when I've looked at uh, NGOs and the way that they talk about gender lens or gender-based economic support, they often talk about... Um, this kind of equality of treatment is giving everybody a shoe. You need a shoe. I need a shoe. We all need shoes to run the race. Here's a shoe. Well, equity is giving everybody a shoe that fits them. So my feet are a size seven. Your feet are probably a size five. You don't need a size seven shoe. We don't need a size 11 shoe. We need one that fits us, right? And then equality really means that everybody deserves a shoe that fits them so that they can run their best race. So the idea is really trying to get, uh, get us to understand that it's everyone gets something, everyone gets something that fits them, and everyone deserves something that fits them. And earlier when you were talking about how feminists have both protective and constructive mm-hmm. ideas, I love the constructive five constructive 
core values for business mm-hmm. that you identified. And so what, what are they? Well, I want to tell you what they are, but I want to go back to this distinction between protective feminism and constructive feminism, because that's a distinction that I've crafted to really help people see what, what most of most conversation about feminism ignores, which is that feminism, kind of like Elizabeth Warren, feminism has a plan. Feminism has an idea of what the world could be like that's based on these five feminist values. And the, the feminist values are equality, which is just the idea, obviously, of all people being equally human. Then the second one is agency, which is this idea that um, the opposite of oppression is agency. It's the ability to do what you believe is right for you, the ability to contribute, the ability to move forward, the ability to determine for yourself and with your community what you want the world to be like. And then whole humanness is this term that I've used to capture this idea that, um, especially in business, we have been taught to think of ourselves simply as bodies that do labor at work or as brains that do knowledge work at work. And we forget that we are mind, body, and spirit, if you will. We forget that we are people with bodies that turn on and off, that rest and that exert themselves. We forget a need to be reminded that we are um, human beings who have lives outside of work and relationships outside of work. And we are also human beings who give birth to new human beings and care for other human beings when they're unable or when they're in the, you know, when they're dying. And all of these things need to be considered when we're designing businesses, because we aren't machines, we're whole human beings with all of this other richness. And that richness needs to be acknowledged and supported, regardless of uh, the kind of work that we do. So that's whole humanness. And then interindependence is this word that I made up because, surprise, we didn't have a word that described at the same time the quality of being independent or agentic or powerful or capable of working on your own, but also interdependent, um, appropriately dependent on other people to contribute to the community, but also to receive support from them. And we need both of those things at the same time. So sometimes you'll hear people talk about it's like independence or interdependence, but I think it is both at the same time. So that's why this weird word that no one knows how to capitalize um, called interindependence. And it'll mess up your spell check, but that's also a really good moment to say, oh, wait, this is an idea that we haven't had a word for. Why is that? And it's because we've been taught to ignore the importance of interdependence And even in interdependence, we've been taught not to think so much about our own responsibility for being strong and for contributing. So then the final feminist value for business is this idea of generativity. And I think about generativity in two ways. One way is just as a a human need. So lots of theories of adult development talk about how we move through places in our lives where there are different things that we need to learn how to do. And one of those things that we need to do is care for other people, um, be in relationships with other people, help other people grow, help other people create, because that ability to be generative and nurturing and supportive to other people is 
one of the things that makes us human. And then on a bigger uh, picture, generativity is also this idea that we want to focus on creating things. We want to focus on um, regenerating things. We want to focus on creativity and lightheartedness and fun. And generativity captures all of those ideas too. So uh, I struggle with the term agency mm-hmm. in the context of living in under a patriarchy. My idea is that it's mm-hmm. it's a process and and with a critical consciousness we can have more and more agency. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what your thoughts are when for example in the domestic violence community there are some controversial ideas that are being piloted where DV advocates are saying we want to center survivors quote unquote agency and mm-hmm. If they want to stay with their abusers, we must honor it and create opportunities for them to do so. And yet they haven't actually helped the survivor develop a critical consciousness, nor are they potentially investigating their own. So Mm -hmm. in that case, where does agency play a role? And how do you interrogate that kind of process of identifying solutions to safety and to ending harm and violence? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll start by saying I don't know a lot uh, any more than what you've told me about how the concept of agency is used like that. But I will say that it sounds like a misuse to me. So a lot of times we hear people say, well, it's her choice. She's chosen to do that. And there are some choices that we make that aren't freely chosen or well-considered choices. You know, if you have a choice between two bad options, sure, make a choice, but that's not necessarily saying the same thing as uh, that's not allowing you to do what you would do if you could do anything in the world. So I think sometimes when, you know, we want to give people the right to determine for themselves what their path through life is, and at the same time, we also don't want to let them hurt themselves or let them hurt others. And so we collectively have to come to an understanding of uh, how people grow into their ability to determine what they're going to do. And so when I focus on agency, I'm trying to focus on this big principle that is if humans are all equal, we are all equally allowed, if you will, all equally able to begin that process of taking charge of our lives and taking charge of our community's lives. Um, But agency is something that when we practice it, we have to learn to develop it and learn how to do it well. So just like we, um, this may sound a little harsh, uh, but it's just like when we um, want people to to get driver's licenses. We want them to have the independence to drive their cars. Uh, We start them with a learner's permit. We have them take classes. We have them qualify for a test. And then we let them go out and drive. And if they make mistakes, we catch them and try to reteach them. And that's the way our society has tried to deal with the concept of agency in, you know, in transportation, if you will. And I think it's really a challenge for all of us to find that space where we are 
acknowledging a person's right to determine what's next for her, but also at the same time holding her in community to help her see that there may be other options. I think also, too, that one of the things that happens is that people kind of go a little bit overboard, if you will, in the sense of, well, here's a situation where people have been um, oppressed or someone's been in, in harm. Let's let her decide now what she's going to do. But that actually reminds me of what happened with enslaved people in the United States when they were finally, quote unquote, freed. Like they were told, go be free. They didn't have places to live. They didn't have food to eat. They didn't have means to generate incomes for themselves. And they needed a whole lot of social support to make that happen. And they didn't get it. And it's, I think, very similar with um, a lot of other issues where we want people to be free of the situation that's hurting them. But we can't just say, okay, you're free now. It's like dropping somebody off at the bus stop in, you know, gym shorts with a $20 bill after they've been in jail for 20 years. That's a great analogy. And it also reminded me of uh, our immigration policies where mm-hmm. uh, if someone is deported, yep. they're just flown to the, to the destination country without any resources either. Right. And just left there. Yeah. In your book, you also define, you actually, I've never heard of this term other than at your talk, but you also define the term curiarchy. Mm-hmm. What is curiarchy and what role does that term have in shaping our business and ideas of work, our business well, world that, and our idea of work? I think that's really, uh, that question is an invitation to talk about some really important stuff. So thank you. So curiarchy is the term that Elizabeth Sh- Schlushler Fiorenza, who's a theologian, she defined this term to talk about all at the same time, the array of systems of power and oppression that create a group of people as being better than another group of people. So she uses the term curiarchy to bring together classism, racism, colonialism, industrialism, sexism, homophobia, uh, heteronormativity, all of those things, all of these different ways that all of these different systems that we use for creating a group of people that are better than another group of people and that get to have power over the other group of people. So curiarchy is a word that is used to say all of these things. It, it triggers us to think intersectionally. It triggers us to think comprehensively. It triggers us to recognize that every time we're fighting against sexism, we're also fighting against racism. We're also fighting against capitalism. We're also fighting against ableism because all of these things are connected and the big picture of those is curiarchy. But I've also started, I also realized that curiarchy can be used in another way. So curiarchy by definition is rule of the masters. And I realized that, but I've been trying to explain to people that uh, feminism is focused on sexism and patriarchy as the first lever, but not the only lever for changing the world. And what I explain is that the process of gendering, the process of separating men and women, the process of creating masculine as better than feminism, all that stuff is 
one particular ruse, it's one particular strategy for saying that one group of people, men, are better than another group of people, women. Um, and Kiriarchy also names that overall process, that overall power dynamic of saying some people are masters, other people are servants. No matter what system you use to create that distinction, Kiriarchy is the mindset that says that's okay. It's the mindset that says some group of people is better than other people and therefore they should have the power and the others should not. So when you talk in your next chapter on obstacles to gender equality in business, uh, you start off with the concept of neoliberalism. And I'm wondering, (laughs) you know, is neoliberalism sort of rooted in the concept of kiriarchy because- Oh, yes. Right, okay. So actually, I love the fact that you gave this overview and historical overview, and I'd love for you to just briefly give us an overview as well of what neoliberalism is and its impact on shaping the world of business today. Yeah, so neoliberalism is one of those uh, worldviews that has a really bad name because we think, oh, it's just more liberalism. It's just more of the application of laws, of rationality, of uh, civic government to managing relationships in the world. Yay, more liberalism. And it's really not that. It's really just code for um, capitalism taking over the world. Uh, So I, I will just admit to you, Terry, that I use neoliberalism as a way to inveigh against capitalism, because it's kind of hard to inveigh against capitalism in a book published for business people. So I hide it in <laughs> neoliberalism. Don't tell people that. Um, so liberalism has two facets that are really important to feminists and feminism in business. The first facet is just this general idea that um, Individual action, individual level action, individual effort is what it takes to make a difference in this world and what it takes to be successful. So neoliberalism is kind of the breakdown of our understanding of society so that it focuses all on individual effort, individual action. Um, It doesn't focus much on individual luck. It doesn't focus much on individuals' access to resources. It doesn't focus on individuals' um, privilege. It's just on individual action. So if you happen to be a privileged person in a world run by a neoliberal framework, and someone says, um, you can get to the top by working harder, you're like, yeah, I can, because the road in front of me is smoothed out through my privilege. But if you're a person who is not privileged, who is marginalized, who is without resources, um, that whole idea of being told to pull yourself up by the bootstraps is ridiculous because you don't even have boots, much less bootstraps. So that's the first element of neoliberalism, the focus on individuals and individual action. The second part that's really very critical to business people is this idea in neoliberalism that markets and market behavior are the paradigm, the interaction paradigm that all of our other interactions as human beings should follow. So it basically means that the marketplace where we make transactions, where we pay for the services that we get, 
where we try to extract extra value and all that kind of stuff. That's the very same attitude that we should take for everything else in the world. And so that's how you find things like for-profit prisons, right? Somebody's going to make money by um, buying and selling um, incarceration services to the state and to the community instead of a, an in, for lack of a better word, an incarceration system or a rehabilitation system or a restributive justice system that's created by the community to help those people who have committed crimes. So it's a, the, the neoliberalism approach of more market and more logic the more business logic, the more you think about it, the more you see it everywhere. So we see it at the macro level in the privatization of things that really ought to belong to the community, like the privatization of public land or public education. And then we also see it just in our um, day-to-day interactions where we think, if I invest in myself, if I take another class, if I get an MBA, I'm going to have more market value and I'm going to get paid more, and I'm going to succeed. So it's a weird combination of hyper-individualism that ignores the role of community and the role of relationships and the role of other people. And it's also a focus on transactional buying and selling and conventional economics as a model for all sorts of human interaction. And one of the examples that I use in my book that um, people are taken up by is I think about how I decided with my two daughters that I would breastfeed them each for a year. And I could do that because I had a flexible job as a, as a professor. But I, I did that because I wanted to create a relationship with my daughters and I wanted to nurture them as, um, as well as I could. And some people would talk about that as me making an investment in breastfeeding, as though I could think about the number of hours I spent doing that and say, well, that's what got her the great SAT scores. It was a great investment. That's a really creepy way to think about a relationship with your child. And similarly, the idea that I'm going to invest in my marriage, it's like, really? It's, it's just kind of creepy sometimes the way that we use this business argument, we make the business case for X, Y, and Z. And that um, crowds out the human case, the moral case, the spiritual case, the loving community-oriented case for all of these behaviors. And it crowds out a lot of our humanity and our whole humanness. When Sorry, you, that's when, a, a no, little no, long no. I, 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 <laughs> When you were talking, actually, I was. it occurred to me that neoliberalism also creates artificial demand for products and services that we wouldn't need if neoliberalism didn't exist. So for example, you know, you talked about prisons. If everybody, if we lived in a feminist world where everybody was, everybody was encouraged and supported to flourish as you uh, shared in your ideas, then there would be no one committing crimes in theory, or at least that would be kept to a minimum. we, We would have a much, we would have a much different kind of crime pattern, if you will. And we would have things that we define as crimes now that wouldn't happen. Right. Right. So we know that one of the um, number one things that predicts, if you will, uh, crime or incarceration is poverty. And another one is race and racism. And another one is access or not to education. 
and in a world where we've a world we've created so that everyone gets the support that they need so that we all can flourish um we would i don't know that it would be a perfect world and there would be no poverty but we certainly wouldn't have state supported poverty that we have now mm-hmm. and we would have education of quality for every child and we would be fighting racism much more effectively and fighting white supremacy much more effectively than we are now but it is all to capitalism's benefit it's all to the benefit of shareholders and owners it's all to the benefit of the elite that these systems are set up the way they are and that reminds me that i used to talk and even when i was writing my first introduction to the book i i was like the system is broken business is broken economics is broken and then i was like whoa whoa it's not broken it's working really well really really well but only for a tiny group of people and that's not feminist right it's it's working the way it's intended to for the people mm-hmm. that are setting it up right so in the second chapter common approaches to achieving gender equality you identify several, and I'd love for you to be able to deconstruct each of them and its intention and uh, where it where it falls short of getting us to where we need to be in terms of applying feminist approaches to building a transformative business culture. So the first one is add women in stir. Yeah. So what I've tried to do in this um, this second chapter, this second section, is answer the question that um, so many business people have, which is If we've been doing this work for 20, 30, 40 years, trying to fix gender equity or gender equality in organizations, why haven't we had more success? Um, And so I've tried to explain that uh, by introducing people to concepts like neoliberalism and post-feminism, which are both ways of looking at the world that suggest that feminism isn't necessary. And then the third thing being gender structure, which is having a helps people have a much more sophisticated understanding of the way that sexism and also the way that hierarchy is built into organizations and built into businesses so that people can understand that it's not changing your individual bias and it's not just changing the hiring systems that we use or the language that we use in advertisements. And it's not just changing our pay and promotion systems but it's changing all of these things simultaneously that's going to be required to achieve equity and equality in organizations, both in terms of um, sex and gender and also in terms of race and ethnicity. So all of these things can be um, applied, if you will, to conversations that foreground race or foreground culture or foreground gender expression or, or whatever particular system of oppression. So what I tried to do in this section was show the six most common ways that organizations or businesses approach the challenge of getting more women into their organizations, right? That's generally the question. How do we get more women and women to be equal to men in our companies? And the very first one is the idea of add women and stir. And that phrase has been around for at least 50 years. I didn't invent it. But the idea is, oh, we don't have enough women in the organization. Let's bring some in. They'll just fit right in because they're cogs in the wheel, just like men are cogs in the wheel. And keep everything the same. Add more people with this particular difference and it'll be fine. 
It's kind of taking, um, like taking a bowl of uh, green M&Ms and throwing in some red ones and saying, see, now we have equality. So it's just mixing the colors of, or the types of the pieces, but the game stays the same. And if you think that um, sexism or inequality is only about where the women and men are, that, that idea, add women and stir, makes sense. But it really doesn't because it neglects to recognize it, refuses to recognize that our organizations are set up for men and not for women. They're set up for males and not for females or other kinds of people. And so there's no way that non-males can kind of fit into this organization. So the, the second level, the second common approach to equality is to fix the women. And that rests on the assumption of, oh, wait, we've brought these women into the organization, but they're not doing well. There must be something wrong with them. Let us fix them. And uh, so we are going to teach women how to negotiate. We're going to teach women to um, speak up for themselves. We're going to teach women to be more um, assertive and charismatic when they lead, and that's going to fix it. So really, it just is, let's adjust women, spruce them up and get them to act just like men, and then everything will work. Well, people tried that and they discovered that that didn't work either, and not for, for so many reasons. So then they thought, maybe we should try a different strategy. Maybe we should look at what women seem to bring into the organization and value that. So, uh, you know, if women tend to be more collaborative or more empathic or to be better listeners, let's say that those are great leadership skills too. Let's encourage women to do them and even some men to do them. And let's value the differences. So that means, oh, you know, if we're going to have three people on the committee to evaluate the risk of this new business idea, let's make sure one of them is a woman because women approach risk differently. And that way, we'll balance out the aggressiveness of the men with the considered thoughtfulness of the woman, right? So valuing the feminism, the feminine just says, all right, if men and women are different, um, let's bring them together. Let's let the women help fix what's wrong with the men. And then we'll have more resources in our organization. Yay. And that's, that's you know, not a horrific strategy, but it doesn't change the power dynamics. It just kind of gives into them. So the next level, and here's where we're starting to think about real system change, is the idea of equalizing opportunities by fine-tuning the system. And this is the approach that kind of roots out things like um, gendered language in job advertisements and says, hey, let's stop talking about ninjas and superstars. And let's start talking about, I don't know, some other language that's going to appeal to women better somehow. Or let's notice that the point in our pay and progression system where we seem to lose women is at the very first rung of the promotion ladder. So let's focus our efforts there so that we can get women up the first rung of the ladder, and then they'll be able to move ahead. And this particular idea of equalizing opportunities is, is, re, has really been quite helpful because there are a lot of procedural adjustments, a lot of system adjustments that we can make to make room for women as women are currently socialized. So it's things like, let's figure out how to, how to work with the idea 
that the average woman is going to have two children in her lifetime. And if we want her to live, to work in our organization for 20 years, we're going to have to keep that in mind in the career progression that we develop for our executives. So equalizing opportunities is a place where uh, there's a lot of good work being done, but it still is tweaking the system. It's still adjusting the system without realizing that the whole system could use really profound change. Then we move to the next level, if you will, of sophistication, and that's this idea of deep cultural change with small wins. And so deep cultural change is really helping people think differently and understand differently and change their values and um, change how they work together around particular issues because it's hard to make wholesale change all at once. And it also helps people to focus on things that get done that work to show that it's possible. So the small wins idea. And one of the ways One really good example of this idea of uh, deep cultural change with small wins goes to something that we see in uh, DEI conversations all the time. Like people are also excited when they learn about unconscious bias, right? Because they can see that they have unconscious bias and they didn't know it. And they can be trained to recognize it in themselves and maybe change their behavior, And so this is a way of fixing both women and men to address bias, if you will, to acknowledge their own bias. Um, But then often it just puts people back into their organization and nothing really changes organizationally. So one really terrific initiative that we've been seeing now is the combination of unconscious bias training immediately followed by an analysis of some organizational system that those people are involved in and the request that they make that less sexist or less gendered or less hierarchical, if you will. So it means taking people from the unconscious bias training and then the next day saying, okay, this is how we have established the criteria for promotion in our work group. Where's the bias in this? How can we redo it and how can we reapply it? So it's kind of the one-two punch, if you will, of changing an understanding and changing a set of systems. The challenge of this is that it can only be done kind of piece by piece by piece, partly because in in business, each of us has a certain set of roles, but we don't run the whole thing usually. So we can fix what we know about, and we have to depend on other people to fix what they know about. So I liken this um, to the idea of injecting a tree trunk with fertilizer, which is means like you're going to get much better response from the area that the fertilizer hits but it's going to take a really long time for the whole tree from roots to leaves to feel healthy again. But if you have people injecting fertilizer into the tree at all different points, it will much more quickly become healthier. So that's a a little bit of a long way to say that um, right now, deep cultural change is with small wins is probably the best practice, if you will, of trying to move towards gender equality and gender equity in organizations. And then I propose also the sixth one, which is transforming the system to help everyone flourish. And that's really when a company recognizes that the whole way that they're set up is just really designed to take as much as it can from workers and give as much as it can to owners And that if we're really going to be a place where everyone flourishes and gets the job done well and creates great products, 
we're going to really have to wholesale redesign the organization. Um, most organizations don't get to this point. It's really threatening and scary to look at your whole company and go, oh my gosh, kind of everything here is built on this idea that some people should have more power than others, um, illegitimate more power than others. And one of the things that we see instead of companies working at level six, what we see instead are new companies, greenfield companies, building themselves from the ground up differently. And that's where entrepreneurial feminism comes in, for example. And that's where all sorts of progressive movements that have flourished in startups come in. Because it's much easier to start with feminist principles and feminist values and to build something new than it is to do a kind of wholesale transformation of an existing company. So when you talked about deep cultural change with small wins, the second half of those ideas and approaches that are more systems change, it, mm -hmm. remind, it reminded me of the way people respond to the climate crisis. Oh, in 20 years, it's going to be too late anyway. We can't turn back the clock. And similarly, in combination with your idea of transforming the system to help everyone flourish, the example of Amazon comes up, right? Like we are so entrenched. Well, at mm -hmm. least many of us are so entrenched yep. as consumers and customers of Amazon and Amazon Prime. And there was a recent thread in a Facebook group that I'm in where the idea came up, you know, what should we do about Amazon? Can we give it up? And to think that just, I don't know, when they started a decade ago, they never, they didn't exist and we were able to purchase things in other ways. And somehow now we feel like we're kind of stuck in this pattern where becoming Amazon less or minimizing mm -hmm. our connection to Amazon is just so inconceivable. And yet that is one thing that we can do in terms of, I guess, a small win, right? With regard to mm -hmm. climate change, like we can purchase less, we can purchase more locally, et cetera. So you're, you're raising at the same time, um, two important questions or issues. The first one is that when we look at the system level changes that need to happen, it's gobsmacking. And it can be really dispiriting and demoralizing. And it does encourage people to just withdraw because they think, what can I do? And we know that you need to, we need to do two things simultaneously. The first one is push and advocate and protest and recommend and use the power that we have to work on system change. And also at the same time, to make the small, seemingly sometimes insignificant adjustments that we can individually. So one of the things I find kind of frustrating when we talk about uh, organizational diversity or gender equity is that it often focuses on individual effort alone. And we feel frustrated because we feel like, and we know in our hearts that's not going to change everything, but it does change some things. It can change our actual day-to-day -day existence. It can change our orientation towards other people. And so I think sometimes like about that, um, the Amazon resistance, I have two friends who are, you know, refusing to use Amazon and refusing to go to Whole Foods. And I'm like, wow, that that's big. That's a big commitment. Um, I still use Amazon, but I try to do it subversively. And again, I know this is simple, but I try to do what I call reverse showrooming. 
So it used to be that um, people would go to Best Buy and they'd actually touch all the electronics and then they'd go on Amazon and find the best price and buy it from Amazon. And I like to do it the other way. So I like to like search for something that I'm looking for and identify what my options are and then find it in my local shops. So the other day I was looking, I was like, do they have extension cords that have little slider things that can dim the light on the extension cord? So I looked at it, looked it up on Amazon. Those exist. So then I could call the hardware store a few blocks away from me and say, hey, do you guys have this thing? And they did. So I bought it from them. Mm. And it cost me $2 more. But you know what? I can handle that. And I walked my dog there. My dog got a milk bone. I walked back with my dog. It was a happy family experience. That concludes part one of our conversation with CV. Tune in next week for part two, where CV and I discuss how to apply feminist interventions to transform businesses to flourish for all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.